Luke chapter 18, as we have been going through this gospel, the gospel of Luke, we are here in the 18th chapter, and I want to look specifically this morning at verses 18 through 30. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. I want to thank the music team for the music this morning, as every morning. You know, they, they get up early on Saturday mornings when you guys are all still sleeping and are uh, preparing music for us every Sunday, so it really is a gift. Appreciate that. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. Follow along as I read. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, with man, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I want to talk to you this morning and I'm going to title my sermon First Place or I could pose it as a question, what is or who is first place in your own life. There is an old recipe for rabbit stew. Is that me? We good? There's an old recipe for rabbit stew. And the recipe begins with the first direction Number one, 
catch a rabbit. First things first, right? You can't make rabbit stew if you don't have a rabbit. Now that applies to life as well. We cannot live a life that matters if we don't have the source of life. You know, too many people are trying to build their life on money, possessions, talents, desires, dreams, husbands, wives, kids, a sense of freedom. Too many people are trying to build their life on quicksand without the source of life. And for a while, it looks like they're living a pretty good life. But it's a sad life. And there is no hope in the end. I wonder this morning how you would define the good life. What is the good life? As we read our text this morning, some of the words that jump off the page to us are found in verse 24, which says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are saying, well, thankfully this doesn't apply to me this morning because I don't have wealth. I am not the rich ruler, and so I'm going to check out and take a little nap this morning while Joel talks. I want to challenge you before we get started. Wealth is found in all sorts of forms. Sure, the immediate context here is what we might call material riches. Those who have enough for their own needs, plus some. I think that's the way that we could define wealth. You've got enough to meet your own basic needs for life, plus some more. More for a little more comfort a little better mattress, a nice piece of furniture, a nicer apartment, a bigger house than is necessary, more clothes, or Tim, more shoes than are necessary. You only have two feet. <laughs> well, wealth, in our, for, for the sake of this text, is just simply defined as You've got some stuff. And also we should keep in mind that according to historic and global standards, pretty much every single one of us in this room is considered wealthy. Meaning if you have a warm place to sleep at night and three meals a day, you are of the wealthy in this world. Now granted there are some here this morning who might not even have that. Maybe it is true, you do not find yourself in any position of riches or wealth. I'm still going to say this text applies to you. 
There's such a thing as uh, intellectual wealth, a mind that, that is good, a mind that can strategize and think deeply and ponder and think philosophically. How hard is it for the intellectual to enter the kingdom of God? There's such a thing as artistic wealth. I've seen pieces of art. I've heard pieces of music. I've seen a dance. I've seen art that is just mind-blowing. Like, wow, how does a human create this? How hard is it for an artist to enter the kingdom of God? There's such a thing as moral wealth. He's a good man. He loves his family. He's generous. He's a good friend. I've known him my entire life. I can't think of one thing that he's ever done wrong. She is just wonderful to be around. She is such an encouragement. How hard is it for the moral person to enter the kingdom of God? There's such a thing as social wealth. You're just good with people. Like you are the person that everybody likes to be around. When you walk into a room, people get happy because you just showed up. You're there. How hard is it for a social person to enter the kingdom of God? My point is just simply this. This text applies to every single one of us because every one of us is wealthy in some category. I may not have mentioned your category, but it's out there. We're all stacked somewhere. And the point is, is that it's hard. How hard is it? It's impossible for someone with so much to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to explore the answer. It's because we trust in our riches. It's because we allow whatever our wealth is to sit on the throne of our hearts. It's because we find our identity in these things as opposed to finding our identity in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Meaning, it's hard because something else is in first place. We start off the passage here with a, with a story. And um, the point of the story is, is very simple, and it, it is just simply this. I'll give it to you. Put Jesus in first place through following him with your whole life. I think that's the point of this story. Put Jesus in first place or... Uh, or I could also put it this way, keep Jesus in, in first place through following him with your whole life. In verse 18, there's a character, a new character in Luke's story. He's a ruler. We find out that he's a rich ruler. In another gospel, we find out that he's a rich young ruler. He's a rich ruler, and he comes and he asks Jesus a question. And he, he calls Jesus, before he asks him the question, he calls him good teacher. 
Now, one scholar points out that nowhere in all of Judaism is any rabbi ever called good teacher. That was a title that would have been reserved for Yahweh. It would have been reserved for God. And so this man is coming with this massive title, putting it on Jesus, calling him good teacher. Does he understand that Jesus is, in fact, the God-man? Does he understand that he is the God-man who is among us? The divine one? Well, absolutely not, as the context will soon show us. This is a piece of what we might call useless flattery. He's just trying to be cool. He's trying to build Jesus up. And, and I think Jesus, I, I think he knows that it's useless flattery, and that's why he presses in on the question, why do you call me good? But there's another piece to this pressing in on that question, on, on, that, on that title. And, and that is this. The man thinks he's good. The man, this rich ruler, is a self-righteous individual. And so Jesus is going to bring up this question about good to lead him down this road toward getting at this man's self-righteousness and ultimately getting at what's on the throne of his heart. So Jesus asks the man in, in, in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now as the man comes to Jesus, Jesus asks him, do you understand the goodness of God? What we're going to find out is the man has no clue about how good God actually is. He has no clue about this man, Jesus, that is standing in front of him. As he comes with this nice, flattery, good teacher, he's coming in an entirely different way than I hope any of us have ever come to Jesus Christ. Or as we compare him to some of the others in the Scriptures, he lacks the desperate faith of John the Baptist in John 1.29 who comes and sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He lacks the sincerity of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 2 who says, Jesus, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. And he lacks the urgency of that Philippian jailer in Acts 16 who encounters Christ, the message of Christ, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, this man is coming to Jesus in some sort of pompous kind of way. And he's wondering what it is that he needs to do in order to be saved. The point is simply this. He's hoping in what he can do. You tracking with me? He's not coming to Christ as the Savior who has done or is going to do. He's hoping in himself. And it's because he believes that he has already done enough. The problem with this, with this self-righteous man the problem is that, is that he has a low view of God's holiness. His problem 
is that he has a low view of the law of God. So look at verse 20. Jesus goes on to say, you know the commandments. Remember his question, what must I do to be saved? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Should I test you? Which commandment is that? Seven. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Six. Come on, according to Tim's message two weeks ago, you guys should know this. All right, I'm done picking on Tim this morning. Actually, I was picking on you right there. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. These are, these are uh, five of the commandments out of the Ten Commandments, and these are the five commandments that have to do with loving other people. The others have to do with loving God. Jesus is going to get at those a little different way. So Jesus brings him half of the Ten Commandments. And look at the man's response in verse 21. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. He can't think of one area in which he has broken any one of these five commandments. Not only is this naive, This is self-righteousness. Now check this out. This man's problem is not just that he has too high of a view of himself. His problem is that he has too low of a view of God's law. And I'm going to just simply say this. That's the world that we live in. We're going to talk about depravity. Why is it that human depravity is one of the hardest doctrines for us to wrap our minds around? It's not that we have too high of a view of people merely. It's that we have too low of a view of God's law. Let's talk for a moment about God's law. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and then everything that comes after that in Leviticus and Numbers. What was the point of God's law? Let me use an illustration. Uh, uh, imagine that there's a man who is uh, ex- extremely unhealthy and, and, uh, and very overweight. And he goes to a doctor and uh, he's got diabetes and a whole bunch of other issues. And the doctor says to this man, here's what you need to do. Because the man doesn't want to hear anything the doctor has to say. Here's what you need to do. You need to drink three gallons of water a day, and you need to run 10 miles every day, starting today, or you're going to die. The man says, I can do that. I got this. He goes on out. The next day, he's an utter failure. Comes back to the doctor, failed. And the doctor says, I knew you would fail. And the man says, well, then why did you require that of me? The doctor says, so that you would know that you need my help. Here, take this pill. The the law has a number of purposes. One of the purposes, one of the chief purposes of the law is so that we might know that we are failures and that we need God's help. 
It's not to puff us up and say, oh, I've got this. I can do this all 100, 100% every bit of it. No problem. This is what it takes to be saved. Give me more. Give me more. No, 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 no. God's given us the law to show us what he requires, to show us what we ought to be like, to show us his holiness, but to show us that we need his help, that we're failures, that we're crushed under the law. We don't stand on top of it as if we have achieved it. This is, this is a, a low view of God's law, the first step in becoming a Christian is to take God's law seriously. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't take God's law seriously, you're never going to become a Christian. It's not until we stand in front of the holiness of God and, and, and read His Word and see it and hear it proclaimed and say to ourselves, there is no way I could ever please this God. Anybody that's out there that doesn't have this kind of awe as they think of standing before God hasn't reached their first step in coming to Jesus Christ. We've got to take his law seriously so that we might know we need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so Jesus, going on in verse 22, he strikes at the core of this man's idolatry. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, here's the emphasis, come, follow me. The point is not on the negative, giving things away, but rather it's the emphasis is on the positive. Give things away for what purpose? And that is to come, that is to come and follow him. Now, the problem is that the man said, what should I do? The man said, give me one more thing. I've already done all of the law. Give me something else. He doesn't like Jesus' answer because Jesus doesn't give him something to do. Jesus gives him something to stop doing. He gives him something to lose. He gives him something to put off. Let's use our, our man with diabetes illustration again. He comes to you and he says, hey, you, you look like you're in shape. What must I do to get in shape? What do I do? Push-ups? Do I do sit-ups? And you say, brother, push-ups and sit-ups aren't going to help you. You need to stop eating sugar. <laughs> it cuts, cuts to the core of our happiness. <laughs> it cuts to the core. Becoming a Christian is not adding another law, another command to our otherwise okay life. It's not adding a religious event like Sunday morning church attendance. Becoming a Christian is a putting off of. It's an abandonment. It's a walking away from. It's a loss 
of something else so that we can have something that we know nothing of. Now, Jesus' command here, sell all that you have and and give it to the poor, it fits with Luke's overall theme and concern for the poor. And some people have taken this in sort of a works-based sense and believe that this is a, a command to every Christian everywhere that we must all give everything away. The irony with that is, and I've actually seen people do this, and then they come and they ask me for some food. Like, that's, that's not actually what Jesus had in mind. We're to be able to provide for ourselves. We're to work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, and so, Jesus, the Bible assumes that we spend some money on ourselves. Th- th- this isn't some works-based principle of, hey, this is how you get saved. You just live a life of complete poverty. No, 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 no. That's a misreading of it. Jesus is striking to what was on the throne of the man's heart. And that was his wealth. He's getting right at the very thing that keeps this man from following Jesus, and that is all of the riches, all of the things of the world that shine so bright in his mind that that he clings to, that would never allow him to follow after Jesus Christ. The, The point is clear, and that is this. In order for Jesus to be first place in this man's life, he's going to have to remove what sits on the throne of his heart, and that is his riches. Because he was exceedingly wealthy. Let me ask you this question. What riches are sitting or are trying to sit on the throne of your heart? What talents What delights, what desires, what good things might be trying to sit on the throne of your heart? One of the humbling aspects for every one of us is to realize that there are many people in hell who would not have been known as a quote-unquote wicked individual on this earth, but they had a hundred good things sitting on the throne of their heart. And they had no room for Jesus. What sits on the throne of your heart? Your spouse? Your kids? Uh, For those that are single, maybe a a sense of freedom, an idolatry even, of of freedom. I can do what I want to do. I, I I have no restraints. Pride. Anger. It's clear to the world when Jesus is not first. When Jesus is not first in your life, it's clear. You are a sad individual. The man, as he hears what it's going to take, and as he clings to all of the wealth of the world, does not walk away happy. He doesn't walk away with joy. But it says he walks away with sadness. The things of the world do not make you happy. They make you miserable because they will never achieve what you set them out to achieve. They will never be a good God to you. And it's evident 
And it's clear as we end up as miserable individuals. Now, after the man walks away, Jesus goes on and he looks at his disciples and he just kind of gives some reflections, some teaching based on the experience that they just witnessed. Jesus turns and reflects on this and he says, verse 24, how difficult is it? For those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is just trying to be funny there. Like some some scholars have tried to explain away like the eye of a needle was like the window opening or they try really hard to, you know, so it's kind of possible, but I think Jesus was just trying to be funny. Like, he, it was just a humorous illustration. He's just saying, like, how hard is it for, to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle, to the point of a needle? And the answer is, what? It's impossible. It's impossible. That's his point. How hard is it for a rich man to enter heaven? Answer, it is impossible. We know that was the intended answer because the disciples immediately ask a question. So who then can be saved? If it's impossible for this rich man to be saved, if it's impossible for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven, how can any of us be saved? That's the right response when you hear this. Because we all have wealth of some sort. So how can any of us be saved? Jesus goes on and we see two big points. Number one, Jesus says, for man it is impossible. Here's my two points. Number one, man is unable. Man is unable. How difficult is it? Verse 26. They ask who can be saved. Verse 27, what is impossible with man? Let's just pause on that word impossible. Everybody say impossible. Impossible. Listen, church, it is impossible for you to be saved. Let's just pause right there. I'm going to finish a sentence. But let's just pause right there. It's impossible for you to be saved. Man is unable. When I was a kid, we sang this stupid song. And it went like this. Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates. Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates. Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates because you'll roll right by those pearly gates. That was deep. That was deep. That's when, I felt, that's when I felt called to ministry. I was listening to that song, and I said, I'm going to go study the Bible. But, it, I mean, it's true. <laughs> hey, Lisa's not heresy. <laughs> but there's, a, there's an element of that in this. You can't get to heaven through being rich. Oh, you can't get to heaven through the world's goods. You can't get to heaven through having wealth. Listen, 
do not long to be wealthy. Don't desire wealth. There are too many kids that grow up and all they want is to be wealthy. There are too many students who go to get a degree and all they can think about is wealth. There are too many guys out on the streets doing the wrong thing and all they can think about is a desire to be wealth, wealthy, to be rich. Church, rich riches are dangerous. Wealth is very dangerous. If you end up wealthy, all right, praise God if he gives you an abundance. If you end up wealthy, have a little bit of a sense of fear and trembling with this new phase of life that you're moving into. How hard is it for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven? But we can't just stop with material wealth. Oh, you can't get to heaven with social skills. Oh, you can't get to heaven with great morality. Oh, you can't get to heaven with a bunch of good works. Oh, you can't get to heaven just through going to church every Sunday. Oh, you can't get to heaven because you look good. Oh, you can't get to heaven because you're really good at manipulating people. Oh, you can't get to heaven because of power. I've got a long list here. I'll just stop right there. My point is this. We are unable. Human depravity is one of the hardest doctrines for us to wrap our minds around because as we go through life, people generally seem, I don't mean the, you know, the, the small percentage of like clearly like really wicked people, but people generally seem okay. There are some lost friends that I have, and I just think to myself, like, that's a good person. That's a really good dude. Listen, that's the kind of guy that Jesus is having this interaction with. Don't you see that? This is, that's the kind of guy. This is the guy who you would look at and, and think, man, this guy, like, I can't imagine that he would end up in hell. But Jesus has a way of getting to the heart. And what we see is that this man is a hater of God because he hates Jesus as he walks away from Christ. He refuses to put Christ on the throne of his heart because he loves the things of the world. The doctrine of total depravity can sometimes be better worded as total inability, meaning he is absolutely unable. He's unable to love God. He's unable to put God first in his life. He's unable to walk away from the sin that he loves. He's unable to live his life as a living sacrifice. He is unable to respond to the call to Jesus. He is unable to follow Jesus. He's unable to love Jesus more than the desires of the flesh. Let's move to my second point, and that is a good point. God is able yeah. 
But God, being rich in mercy, God is able to do for us what we are unable to do. Look at verse 27. We can go on with it now. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Let me finish my phrase that I started. It is impossible for you to be saved, but God, being rich in mercy, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. God is able to do for us what we are unable to do. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of our story. When Adam sinned against God, God cursed the ground. God cursed Adam. God cursed Eve. God cursed all of humanity. We are now in chains to sin and death, and we are going to die. There is a curse. But even in the very beginning of the story, we see that there's some hope. We see good news. Remember, there's this serpent. The serpent is the, the, the creature that led Adam to sin. The devil, through the serpent, tempted Adam. Now, as God, after he curses uh, creation and humanity, he looks to the serpent and he places a curse upon the serpent. He doesn't say, Adam is going to crush your head. He doesn't look at Adam and say, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to remedy this situation. Here's how you're, you lost it. You, 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 you ruined it for humanity. This is what you've got to do to restore humanity. Adam, you need to crush the head of the serpent. God didn't say that. Too many Christians act as if God did. Too many Christians act as if we are the ones who are to crush the head of the devil. As if we are the ones who are to, 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 to work our way toward holiness. As if we are the ones who are to muster up enough power and energy within us to overcome sin. No, God in the very beginning gave a promise. He said there's going to be a son who's going to be born to the woman. And the serpent, he's going to bruise the son's heel. He's going to do some damage. But the son is going to take his heel and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. From the very beginning of our story, we see a but God. Curse. But God. Impossible for man. It's possible with God. Because God is sending a son. God is sending a baby who's going to be born. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Oh, that second birth right there. That's what we need. 
That's the doctrine of regeneration. That is being remade, reborn. That's going from not a Christian to a Christian. On my way to hell, on my way to heaven. Loving sin, loving Jesus. Everything else, all of my desires, all of my riches, all of my wealth are first place. And now Jesus is first place. What happened? For any one of us in here, who can say, Jesus is first place in my life? Do you realize you, you can only say that because of this second birth? Because God did something for you that you are unable to do for yourself. What's impossible for man is possible with God. Somebody say amen. Amen. So what is this? What is, what, is, what, what is God able to do in, in this text? He's able to do this very thing that we're talking about, and that is he has the ability to change your desires so that you might make Jesus first place in your life. It's just that simple. That's what he's able to do. You're not able to do that. He's able to do that for you. It's possible. And so as the story goes on, Peter has this like aha moment. Look at verse 28. Peter says, see. That word see is is the word behold or look or wow, check this out. We've left our homes and followed you. I don't think Peter is bragging here. I think Peter is genuinely astonished He's just kind of self-reflecting on this experience they've had as disciples, and he's like, oh, wow, like, that's actually what, we, what we've done. We actually left everything behind. We left our fishing nets. We le- remember those piles of fish early on in Luke? We left all of those behind, and we followed Christ. We followed you like, see, look, wow, behold, we've done this. And Jesus then goes on to encourage him and says, your sacrifice is worth it. This is how he says it. He goes on and he says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying it is worth it. Is it ever right to do the right thing to get a reward? You understand the question? Sometimes we think, I shouldn't do something just to get a reward. I should do something just because it's right. Well, let's think about that a little bit. Let's go back to the year 2003. I'm dating my wife girlfriend at the time, and I'm being really nice to her, and, you know, it kind of got to this point in this relationship where the right thing was to go buy a, a diamond ring. Went, ha- went ahead and did that and bought a diamond ring, and then the right thing was to take her out to a nice dinner. So I took her out to this dinner, and then I took her out side of the restaurant there, the right thing was to get on my knee. So I got on my knee, and 
and said, and the right thing was to, is to say, would you, would you marry me? And so then she responds, she's like, oh my gosh, oh. And then she says, yes, you can have me, uh, yes, you can have me. And then if I were to respond and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, I don't really want you. I'm, I'm just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Don't you understand? Well, that lacks love, doesn't it? Here's the point. Here's the point. To do the right thing for the wrong reward is wrong. But to do the right thing for the right reward is actually biblical. We ought to be doing the right thing for a reward. But for the right reward, not the wrong reward. The problem is, we typically think along the lines of wrong reward. This world, we think of riches, we think of glory in this world. Uh, people liking status, power. Oh, that's the wrong reward. We, Jesus wants us to do the right thing for the right reward. What is the right re reward? It is, it is Christ himself. He is the reward. And so none, nobody's ever going to stand in heaven and be like, yep, I did the right thing, I believed in you, and I don't really, you know, that's okay, I don't really need any of that. You can keep the mansion, thank you very much, you know, keep heaven, I'll just kind of hang out in this corner, I was just trying to do the right thing on earth. Jesus would say, you don't love me. If we love him, we want him to be the reward. We want that reward. He is the crown. We're, we're running this race to finish, and I don't know anybody that finishes a race that doesn't get a reward. Even at the Baltimore Marathon, if you take, you know, 15 hours to do the 5K, you still get a little thing to put around your neck. You get a reward. It's okay to do it for the right reward. So Jesus goes on and he says, like, look, here's the reality. People are going to have to leave things behind. Things that we cling to are our house, wife, brothers, parents. A house could be a reference for your job. It could be a reference uh, for somebody in the early context. They're losing literally their job or their house, their livelihood, because they're following Jesus. A lot of these would apply to those very first Christians in the first century. Wives would sometimes leave their husbands because their husband became a Christian. Don't you know it's worth it? Maybe it could apply to singles who choose to remain single instead of taking a wife. Or maybe it could even apply to situations where a husband or wife would have to temporarily leave their spouse, I mean, sinfully, but for a couple nights for some gospel purpose. Meaning it just it applies across the board. Anything time we sacrifice anything for the sake of the kingdom, Jesus is saying it's worth it. Parents, brothers, leaving home for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of ministry. Or maybe uh, parents who reject you because you're a Christian and you're going a different way than the family went. The point is just simply this. No matter what it costs, Jesus is worth it. No matter what earthly riches we have to 
abandoned. Jesus is worth it. He says in verse 30, here's the reward. He will receive many times more in this life. Now here this is a clear reference, and we see this elsewhere, to the church. Brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. Think of the early church. They, they lost people when they became Christians. They were rejected when they followed Christ as their Savior. But what did they gain in this world? They gained the church. They gained family. Don't you understand, too, this is why it's so important for us to be family to each other, yeah. to strive to fulfill some of these promises to the brothers and sisters that are in this room who may have lost something because they've become a Christian. It's worth it now because you have the blessing of God's community on earth. But then he goes on. Listen, the church, this, this is just a taste of what's to come. Your best friendship is just a taste of what's to come. Your greatest love on earth is just a mere taste of what's to come. Your greatest pleasure, your greatest desire that you've ever had is merely a taste of what's to come in the age to come. Jesus says, in the age to come, what do you receive? Eternal life. Life. No more death. No more tears. No more crying. The old order is passed away. Jesus ends where it begins. And that is this question of salvation. How can we inherit eternal life? It's through Christ. It's through Christ being first place in our life. One of the simple joys in my life was in 2016 when the Cavaliers won the NBA championship. Some of you thought that since LeBron James left Cleveland that you'd never have to hear another Cleveland illustration. I've got more where that came from. It's past tense now. I watched the game with Tim, actually. If you remember the series, which unfortunately many of you probably don't, the Cavs were down 3-1 to one in the series. No NBA team has ever come back from a 3-1 to one deficit and won the championship. And then they won a game, 3-2. to two. Then they won another game, 3-3. to three. They tied it up. I watched the seventh game with Tim in West Virginia. It was amazing. Game seven, there's the ups and there's the downs. Ten seconds left. LeBron James is laying on the ground, holding his ankle, and I'm holding my breath. But they pulled it off and they won. Montrell's going to say he, he was just flapping. He was playing. No, he got hurt. The point is this, they won. Amen? Come, come, somebody should be shouting right now. You guys aren't helping me preach this morning. Ugh, stressing me out. Now, since 2016, I've watched those games a couple times, two or three times. It's better the second time around. It's better the third time around. 
I can watch those games through a little different lens. I, I see things that happened in those games that I didn't see before. Even the losses, I can sort of rejoice in. Even the downsides, even the scares, I can rejoice. Why? It's because I know how the game ends. I've, I've given you the pain of one more Cavaliers illustration to make this point. We can go through the losses in this life because, church, we know how the game ends. We can go through the pain and the suffering. We can go through the loss, the persecution, whatever may come our way for the sake of the kingdom of God because we know the end, because there is a reward, there is an age to come. Christ is coming back. Jesus is going to return. And in that day, we are going to receive eternal life. One pastor from the past, put it this way. He says, one day in heaven, you will be repaid. Oh, you will be overpaid. Your blood, your bonds, your sorrows, your sufferings. It would trouble, he goes on, it would trouble an angel's understanding to lay the account of that surplus of glory which eternity can give you and will give you. Meaning an angel wouldn't even be able to tell you how glorious that day is going to to be. The rich young ruler forfeited all of that so that he might have temporal wealth in this life. He was unwilling to lose all and follow Christ. The cost was too high. It was too much to follow Christ. Christ, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a serpent, a servant, being humbled even to the point of death. Christ Jesus suffered the greatest loss that any of us can ever imagine. Listen, he will not call you to lose anything in this life that would exceed the loss that he experienced in this world. He died for the sins of humanity. The depths of suffering became his. The world rejected him, and he lost for us so that we might be forgiven of our sins and saved. We sang this song, what child is this? In Mary's lap is sleeping. What a beautiful little picture that is. But then we go on to say, Hail's spear shall pierce him through. He died. The cross was born for me, for you. What hope do we have? Three days later, Jesus Christ conquered death. He conquered loss. He conquered suffering. He conquered the world as the stone was rolled away. An angel sat on the stone and an angel said, he's not here. He's risen. He's been risen from the dead. Let me ask you this question as we close. Is this your faith? Do you have this faith? And if you have this faith, do you realize how rich you are yeah. now in this world 
and forevermore. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim at the light of His glorious grace. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus. Amen. An old Christian, near the end of his life, he put it this way. He said, I have now given all of my property to my family. There's one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is my faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that, and I had not given them a single penny, they would be rich. And if they had not that, and if I had given them the whole world, they would be poor indeed. I want my kids to have faith more than money. I want you, church, to have faith more than riches. As a church, I want us to be a church that is, has a profound and robust faith in Jesus Christ more than all of the, the nice things that a church can have. I want that for myself. That when I die, I might not be known as a wealthy man, but that I might be known as a man of great faith. Is that your desire? Is Christ enough for you this morning? He is enough for you this morning. Cling to Him. Run to Him. What a sufficient Savior He is. Amen? Father, we thank You that You are enough for us. We ask, God, that as we go from here, enjoy the Christmas season with our friends, with our families, that we would be so overjoyed with the hope of Christ, the Word made flesh, the hope of glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.